Okay, I'll back up a bit. All right. Just just use one of those sultry commercial voices. <laughs> if only I could. Best Barry White voice going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of babies were born under that music. <laughs> CCF in depth. How you doing, Jeff? I'm George. How you doing, George? I'm Jeff. And we have with us... Hi, I'm Gabe. Hi, I'm Gabe is here. Hi, Gabe. Hello. Hi, Gabe. Hello. <laughs> I, like, I, so, like your other, I like your other name better, Batflunky. Batflunky is an awesome name. Mm-hmm. I thank you. <laughs> so this is our uh, episode devoted to Valiant Comics. And for those of you who don't know what Valiant is, from 1992 through 1995, Valiant Comics was unavoidable. If you went into a comic shop or even on spinner racks that were still around in a few places in pharmacies, Valiant was kind of king. They never were out doing Marvel or DC in sales per se, but they were the company that had all the hype surrounding them. They were the company that was dominating back issue sales that were, you know, if you went to a comic book show, they were the one everybody was talking about. For a few brief years, Valiant was the comic company to watch. And then they were gone. And they've left enough of a mark in hindsight that Gabe, George, and I are all three big fans who love this company, love what it did, and are really excited to talk about it today. And I want to take a moment to introduce Gabe, who you briefly heard a moment ago. Uh, Gabe, otherwise known as Bat Flunky, is... By far, the CCF's biggest Valiant fan. Um, he is passionate about it. He knows a lot about it. And we knew we couldn't do this conversation without him being a part of it today. So, Gabe, we are so excited to have you here. Stop. You're making me blush. We'll make you blush. be <laughs> fun. <laughs> Glad you're here, man. Glad you're here. We need some uh, some interaction about this Valiant thing because they went fast. It, it went they, so they went, fast. It came and went fast. It, it's um, It's amazing. You know, it's... There are, for the people who knew Valiant, they get so excited and so passionate about it. And for everyone else, it's sort of like, a, oh yeah, did that happen? <laughs> there were a lot of people <laughs> who bought Valiant and speculated on Valiant, but it was in the mid-1990s. They never actually read the damn issues. And so if you never open one up, you don't know what you were missing. But there's so much great there. And a lot of these are still sitting in dollar bins today, waiting to be rediscovered. So um, Gabe, we'll start with you since you're our guest today. How do you explain Valiant to someone who didn't know it? What was special about it? Well, it was it was a comic book company that didn't really feel like Marvel or DC or even Image. It just felt like something new. I mean, the the only thing I could honestly compare it to would probably be Shooter's Otherwork New Universe. But I mean, even then, it had a different flavor to it. It actually had some... I mean, I'm sure, yeah, you guys already talked about this in the Jim Shooter podcast, but I mean, New Universe had a lot of thought put into it, and unfortunately it wasn't properly executed, but Valiant felt like his second chance to do it correctly. You know, I heard that there was a comic that was just like uh, Harbinger. Yeah, TP7. They said a lot of similarities. 
Yeah, and, and there are elements of Cyforce that found its way into Valiant Comics. Um, Starbrand is very similar to Solar in some respects. Absolutely. I, I, I think it would be... I'd be impressed to find someone who would argue that Valiant wasn't New Universe 2.0. So, Gabe, I think you're totally spot on with that. So, Gabe, how about for you personally? Uh, being a huge Valiant fan, what excites you about Valiant? What makes you... I think you said Valiant is makes up half of your comic collection. Is that right? Um... Yeah, right next to Judge Dredd and New Universe, honestly. Uh, not New Universe, the Malibu Ultraverse. So why Valiant? What makes it special to you? Definitely the storytelling. Definitely the storytelling. I mean, you could definitely feel that there was good creativity just bubbling up to the surface. You mean Jim Shooter. Yeah. You mean Jim Shooter. That's <laughs> the top what? dog. He was the guy. How do you talk about Valiant without talking about Jim Shooter, honestly? He, he was a creative, he was the brains. And, and it, it took a step down once he left. Not right away, but, it, you know, you can see over the next year or so, it kind of took a step down. But, I mean, you know, you know I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, Gabe, but, you know, something I really liked about Valiant, which was kind of different, they were, they were setting everything in real time. They were actually giving you dates, February 1990. You know, Wednesday, February, you know, March, nineteen ninety one, or whatever. You know, they they had a lot of. It was interesting. They were setting it in real time, so they weren't trying to be like Marvel, where you know the sliding aging scale and everybody's twenty nine and they never get older. So it was interesting. You see the time passage. So he might have had big plans somewhere along the line to like kill somebody. Somebody else takes over. Too bad he you know he only stuck around for a couple of years. What I definitely appreciated about it, too, was that when somebody died, they stayed dead. They didn't, like, come back through magic or, like, some cosmic <laughs> event or something like that. But I would argue that the only reason nobody came back because the company died quick. They started, <laughs> right. <laughs> they started in 1991, and by 1994, it was all done. There, there was almost no time to bring anybody back, ex except Peter Stanchek came back, but that wasn't Shooter. I, and I think this kind of goes back to where we're ultimately going to go with this. You know, George, you said it was it was Shooter, it was his ideas. And, and I don't think either of us would disagree with you. Because effectively, once Shooter was gone, Valiant was mostly running on Steam. There weren't many new ideas left. And um, as a result, almost everything great that happened at Valiant happened in a very, very brief window of time. And it was still serviceable after that. You know, I, I don't think Valiant was ever a bad company. But there was Valiant under Shooter, and there was Valiant not under Shooter. It happened so quick, though. Uh, 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 you know, in 1990, the, well, actually, the comic company started by publishing Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and I think they were doing some wrestling or some kind of books like that. And then They came finally, a little later, but yes. Yeah, they, they were losing money. And it, oh, wasn't yeah. until, it wasn't until Shooter said, look, let's, let's lease these characters, Magnus, Solar. They leased those characters, and then it became to take, began to take off. And he started the world building and bringing other other people in, like Harbinger and EXO. And it just seemed like after Unity, that's when, you know, he was dismissed out of uh, the Valiant Company. And yeah. it, it, I still I still liked some of the things they had. I did like Hardcores. I liked, uh, I mean, they did nice things with Turok. I mean, uh, but, you know, they were, they were looking to sell the company. So that means nobody really like, cared. You need somebody to be the person taking care of the property. And it seemed like nobody really wanted to take that job. Well, it was a very capitalist way to do things because it was just Voyager Communications. They just wanted to flip it for easy money. 
Yeah. And part of it's the time period is that Jim Shooter was trying to do something very 1961 Marvel in a 1991 comic book market where things were run by big corporations and profit was king. And, you know, the, the kind of company he wanted to create just wasn't done anymore. So he had to get in bed with a lot of people who weren't creative comic book type people. And what's amazing is he created a company that for a while was truly working. And while, you know, the, the individual names of titles might not be familiar to our listeners who've never read Valiant before, you know, Harbinger, Magnus Robot Fighter, Solar Man of the Atom, Exo Manowar, Rai, Turok, um, Shadow Man, they were absolute classics and had the ability to become revered franchises for all time if things had gone a different way, um, I think it's fair to say. But I also want to bring up, George, you brought up the real-time aspect before. One really important um, aspect of Valiant was its sense of realism. Shear was trying to write a comic book universe that the target adult fan base and older adolescent fan base could really wrap their heads around and embrace more easily than the nonsense that was comic book companies that began originally being sold to little kids. Just to share a little quote from Jim Shooter about what made Valiant different. He said, um, and, and this is upon realizing he didn't have the money to compete because, um, you know, back then you had Image and Marvel were catering to, um, they were hiring the, the big name artists who were getting paid crazy amounts of money to draw characters that were, you know, super muscle bound and, you know, foil embossed covers that sold everything. And Shooter couldn't compete with that. So he said, I thought, what can I do well? Well, I could write out the competition. I could write better stories and I could make them much richer. Give them more content like Stan's old stories, the early Spider-Man stories and the early FFs, where you really felt like you read something. What else could I do? I could do real science. The other writers couldn't do real science. They wouldn't know it if it bit them on the leg. I can develop the characters better. I can do continuity. No one else can do continuity the way I can. Not when they have a whole bunch of different writers and stuff. So I thought of all these things I can do. And I thought, all right, if we're going to do this more realistic approach, let's do it with very straightforward storytelling. Let's worry about the backgrounds. Let's do the research. Let's do it right. And Bob was very good at that, Bob Layden. Bob was one of those people who taught young artists he was training to use templates and use the reference. Don't make up a car or something you can't get a picture of and stuff like that. I, I think that's the heart of what made Valiant. Well, that's a big part of the heart of what made Valiant different. You know, when characters fly, they talked about how uncomfortable it was to have the wind in their face. Um, there was no magic. There weren't, you know, inexplicable things that made no sense. It just, as much as possible when science could be used to explain something it did, and it just felt more grounded in the real world. And the dates and times absolutely included that. You could see, um, especially with, with Unity, that he mapped out literally minute by minute what the continuity was across titles. It was incredible. Here's what's happening at 11.32 a.m. Here's what's happening at 11.36. You know, you refer, you refer to the flying aspect. It's interesting because, you know, he had people flying but standing up flying. And I, mm -hmm. and I thought about that. You know, who would fly like Superman? You know, like, like laying down, flying with right. hands. That, that's something nobody would do that, you know? If you could fly, you would just fly in a comfortable way. Right. And Zephyr wore goggles when she flew because the wind in your eyes sucks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it was fun in that way. I mean, it's funny when you say realistic when you attach it to a comic book because, you know, it's not really realistic. But, you know, it's more realistic and more relatable. And you're right. When I read those uh, early Harbinger books, 
you get into it. I mean, you know, they they do things and that kind of you can relate to. They broke into a post office one time and they took things and it's just you know you could feel the sense of danger when they're doing it. You know, they go, we can't we can't stay here. We got to get out. You know, and you kind of cared. And you you mentioned like early Marvel. And I, I remember going to a comic convention around that time, and there was so much buzz. People were saying, you know, Valiant feels like Marvel when it started. There's a world-building aspect to it where you see people relating to each other and people crossing over. But, you know, it, it was, it, there was just, a, it, it, just the way it was being built made you want to care more, made you want to get the other books in a more organic way. Absolutely. And they kept putting cameos of people in books that later on will start their own book, like in a background or something. I think Shadow Man is playing a, a sax in the background of some other book. I, I forgot which one it was. It I think been... it was Exo Manowar. It was that, like a, I was going to say. Yeah, yeah it, it, it was right. the issue where he met Harada for the first time. And that's interesting. You're like, hold on, who's that in the background? <laughs> so, so like everything, you every time you bought a, 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 a Valiant book, you were like, Am I am I getting the first appearance of somebody in the background walking walking by or whatever? <laughs> it was kind of fun, you know. Yeah, in the world before previews, magazine ruined surprises and fun in comic books. I, I remember, and this was long after Valiant had sort of hit its its peak, but I remember that I was reading an issue of um I, I just picked up an issue of Shadow Man at my uh, LCS, and I'm walking out the door, flipping through it, and I'm like, wait a second, is that Doctor Mirage? And I'd seen the advertisements, right? you know, from issues. I'm like, <laughs> they did that, yeah. Is this his first appearance? And I ran back inside and I bought like, I think there were like 16 copies left on the rack. That's how hot the book was. And I bought every freaking copy. And of course it's <laughs> worthless today. It's utterly worthless today. But I was so thrilled. And that was, you know, another beautiful thing about Valiant is while it was full of substance, you know, those stories were well written and well considered and well thought out. They were also great at the hype game. They really, really knew how to make you want to run out and speculate over the next issue. John Hartz was the uh, promotions guy. And Jim Shooter doesn't often give a lot of credit to other people. That's not really his thing. <laughs> but he'll, he, I mean, it's true. I mean, I, I, we've both listened to enough interviews with Shooter. He doesn't tend to praise people other than for their ability to listen to him. You're but listening he, to wrong interviews because I've heard him praise quite a bunch of people. But, but, he, but he was like, John Hartz, that guy, he had good ideas. And, you know, <laughs> Valiant was kicking off, you know, the, the coupon incentives where you had to buy six issues of a comic book and cut out the coupons inside to send away for the number zero issue and zero issues. And, I mean, they were the first, I, I don't know if they were the first to ever do this, but they certainly popularized the dealer incentive. You buy enough copies of this comic and we'll send you a gold copy of it, too. You buy even more copies, we'll send you a platinum copy, too. All these really cool different, uh, they had the interlocking covers together that created um. There was a page inside the first 10 issues of Solar, Man of the Atom, that if you put them together, created the world's largest comic book panel. And then Unity, each one of the covers had an interlocking cover that created a larger piece of artwork. And then you also had um, Solar number 10 was the the black, the all-black cover that investors freaked over. And I, to this day, I don't know why that was special, but it was, um, you know, they were thinking outside the box, too, and finding in these first appearances, not announcing them. And just, you know, I guess you'd better buy three copies of every Valiant comic every month because you don't know who's going to show up in the background playing the saxophone. <laughs> it was yeah. brilliant. It was fun. It was fun, too. Again, it, it brought a, a sense of fun into these comic books. And, and you know, 
you, you mentioned something earlier about the zero issues. You know, that wasn't the very first zero issue. I thought I thought Valiant invented zero issues, but it turns out in 1968 they had a Zap Zero yep. of all things. And it yep. turns out it, it wasn't like a like a book that was supposed to be printed, but it wasn't. So later on, he released it as a zero issue. But I, I just, but you know, one thing's for sure, he popularized the zero issue. And after that, everybody was doing it. And then, you know, what's funny part? I, I remember hearing that the other competitive comic companies, competitors, DC and Marvel, they were laughing at all the things that Jim Shooter were coming up with, only to copy it months later. Like the all black cover, the all black cover. Oh, look at that! You know they they were making fun of it, and then later on they came up with a Fantastic Four issue that was all white, <laughs> all red, yep. you know, and and even the zero issues. DC a few years later had a whole zero month where every comic book had a zero issue. So zero hour, they made a whole freaking event. Zero hour, yeah. Well, you know, and that that's the impressive part too. Is you know, in in a little to go backwards a little bit. Originally, way back in the day when George and I were first talking about doing a podcast, our plan was to do Valiant Comics as our first episode. And then the more we got to talk, the more we realized how much background info we wanted to get into about Jim Shooter, that episode one ended up being just about Jim Shooter in general. And then we always had a plan to come back to this. Because honestly, Valiant really is, after Jim Shooter gets expelled from Marvel and is disgraced, and is a pariah and has no friends left in the industry whatsoever to call upon. This was his comeback story. And somehow he got to the point where Valiant was making the big two nervous. DC was still outselling Valiant, but they were also, I, I think it was DC had twice as many sales um, in 1994 as Valiant did. And they were putting out three times as many books. So they were paying a whole lot more. They were paying right, a whole so lot more for those sales. Each individual issue Valiant was selling was outselling individual DC titles. And that's incredibly impressive considering that that shooter started with absolutely nothing. It, it, it's the most amazing comeback story ever, even if it ends tragically. <laughs> tragically. <laughs> okay. That's dramatic. Well, you know, and, and we'll revisit that thought later on. But... um. George, you know, since, we, since we're setting up talking about what happened at Marvel, do you want to delve a little bit into how Valiant came to be? Well, uh, well, after uh, Jim Shooter was fired out of Marvel in 1987, he met Steve Masarski, and somehow they hit it off, and they decided to uh, try to get together, like, shows using Marvel's properties, like arena shows, like, like uh, Ice Capades, that kind of thing, but using Marvel comic books. And... They tried to get it together, and so I think the financing fell through. But they remembered that they both kind of were simpatico at the same at the time, so they remembered. So later on, they got together and they did the Valiant. Now, Steve Masarski, he was a lawyer, an entertainment lawyer, and he also uh, represented some, I think, the Altman Brothers and a few other big bands and acts, and. Uh, and, and, you know, they got together and they started to do this. Now, the thing with Masarski, he was a slick guy. You know, he, he at the beginning, they were doing wrestling books. And guess what? He represented wrestling. So he was getting a piece of the action from both ends. So he, he, had, he had a slick way of doing things where he always got money out of everything, representing two sides. So he foreshadowed what was going to happen to Shooter later on because he was a lot slicker. And a, and a lot more, like, I guess, shady. 
And and you know he didn't you know like like uh, Gabe pointed out before, Masaki didn't have a love for comic books. He just had a love for the money. So they <laughs> wanted to put something together and and uh, flip it. And let, and I don't think Jim Shooter wanted that. Jim Shooter wanted to keep a comic company going. You know where he was in charge and and he could control a lot of the aspects. I mean you did point out Jim Shooter likes to control things. Yes, he okay. does. <laughs> okay, you know somebody's got to do it. You know, but. But, you know, yeah, so they did a couple of shenanigans, got him out of the company, and then I think Bob Layton took over. And after that, but they were still looking to sell the company. So they, they, they I mean, I remember them saying that when they finally sold it, they had an offer initially with another company for like $350 million, something crazy like that. And, and the deal fell through because once they found out Shooter was fired, they told him years later, well, the company backed up because they realized the idea guy was gone. So they recognized Shooter was the, the engine behind, you know, all the creativity and the world building. And I mean, look, was when, when the Shooter was gone, that's 1992. And by 1994, they already sold to Acclaim. And Acclaim, they were only interested in doing the video games. Right. They, they didn't really care about the creative side of comic. They just... We're using it as like an IP to sell video games. You know that that was the big money maker, I guess. Yeah, so, it, it. The weirdest thing about it too is, I almost everybody who's a fan of Valiant, almost everybody who got into it and loved it, we pretty much all discovered Valiant after the Golden Age was over and after Shooter was already out the door. It, it's actually kind of insane that when when you look at what made Valiant great, you know, the real Golden Age of Valiant. It all happened over the course of seven months. Wow. All the best moments, in, well, with a few exceptions, almost all the high points in Valiant happened over the course of seven months from October 1991 to, what is it, April 1992? Because in October, that's when, um, before that, as as you pointed out before, George, you know, in the beginning it was, um, Shooter was fighting even just to get superhero comics made. Um to be clear, he was in a partnership with uh, an entity called Triumph Capital, which was a venture um, capital firm looking to invest and make a quick turnaround. And they had two voting partners on the board that was Valiant Voyager Communications. You had Steve Masursky, who was a guy that Jim Shooter met doing Marvel ice skating shows. You know, he was he was looking for creative ways to make a buck. Um, he certainly wasn't a comic book guy. You had uh, the silent partner, Winston that we don't know much about other than what Shooter says about Winston. I'd like to learn more about him myself, but there isn't a lot said. And then you've got Jim Shooter, who's looking to make a comeback after having lost his empire at Marvel and sort of redeem his name. And so he is working passionately to finally get superheroes made. And eventually he wins the fight, and it's, it's almost like he knew he was running out of time. You know, first you've got Magnus and Solar <laughs> running for a bunch of time, George is laughing because he knows my tinfoil theory is already revving up. I love it. Here it comes. <laughs> you can hear the lightning crackle overhead. I can hear the tinfoil crackling. There you go. <laughs> so you, Magnus and Solar are the first two titles that he publishes. And I think there was a wait and see approach if they'd even sell. Uh, those were established properties. It was a, a relatively safe gamble. Um, he'd gotten those from Random House. They were originally gold key titles. And then finally he gets the green light in October 1991. Valiant releases its first original title, which is Harbinger Number 1. And a month later, without any delay, 
November 1991, you got Harbinger number two out, you got Magnus Robot Fighter and Solar still going, and you've got Exo Manowar number one launches, another new original title. Then you get yourself to December, and in addition to Exo still being out and Harbinger being out and Solar and Magnus, you also get Rye number one coming out. And then in January, suddenly you've got nothing new. My bad. Nothing new happened in January except for Battle Mania WWF World Wrestling Federation. Yeah. Yep. There you go. I mean, there were there were new issues of Solar, XO, Rye, Harbinger, and Magnus hitting stores, but no new titles. And then in February, you have Shadow Man number one finally launches. So we missed one month where we didn't get a new title. And then in March, um, you have two major events occur: uh, Solar Man of the Atom number ten and Harbinger number six were both major franchise changing moments. And then April 1992, Unity launches, which was the major crossover event that put Valiant on the map, got them attention and acclaim. And that's also the moment where everyone realizes as they're beginning to discover that Shooter was right, he actually did know what he was doing. At almost the exact same moment, the world discovered that Shooter had already been fired back in February, very quietly. It all happened that fast. There was a lot of behind scenes stuff going on. Sure. And, you know, Valiant did some good things afterwards. Shooter left behind a couple of notes that empowered them to do um, one issue of Magnus Robot Fighter was based on his notes that goes back and talks about Magnus's childhood. Um, some of his notes about where characters might go in the future fueled Rye number zero. But beyond that, that was Shooter's contribution to Valiant. And that was indisputably Valiant's high point as well. Valiant continues on for four more years. But in those seven months... Almost everything worthwhile happened. Maybe have more. Maybe have more in the, in the shoot. Down the shoot. Could be. To, to release. Could be. It's, it's interesting. Whenever you have interviews with Shooter about Valiant, he never talks about what he would have done. But um, he did get one chance um, when he did years later. It felt like years later. It was actually only three years after Valiant's original universe kind of ended. Um, they brought him back to do... Um, Unity 2000. It was this attempt to revitalize the Valiant universe and make it exciting and new again under new ownership. And um, they hired Jim Shooter. February 92 is when he's fired. Seven years later is when he comes back to run Unity 2000. So he comes back. I'm not sure that all was necessarily forgiven, but it is a new company with new people in charge. And they basically give him the freedom to write the Valiant universe how he would have done it and then blow the whole thing up and reboot it. That's essentially the idea. And having read it, it was never finished. Um, but they, the, the, there were three issues that were published. There's also scripts for at least one issue that wasn't published. I think there might have been more. I read them a long time ago. And I can honestly say he doesn't have a lot of new ideas in that series. You, you see where these characters are, and it's, there's nothing that exciting going on with what's happened to them. Well, I, you know, you went kind of fast there, Skippy. Gabe, did you you ever read Unity 2000? I thought it was okay. I mean, it was interesting that they used the fact that Jack Boniface, um, Shadow Man, was fixing to die as a launching point was kind of interesting. I I approached it mostly as a fan of, uh, of Magnus and Solar and Harbinger, and I was really disappointed because... I, you know, I, I was a huge fan of those original series. I really wanted to see where was Shooter going to go with these guys? And there, there just, there wasn't much. And I will, I'm the, probably the only person in the world who would dare to argue that 
Magnus Robot Fighter is the one Valiant title that got better after Shooter. Um, David Michelini took it in really exciting places, and a couple other writers who got involved afterwards, too. It became a really fascinating epic that was way more evolved and, and deeper and, and more exciting. And not only did Shooter kind of pretend that never happened, but he replaced it with nothing. Magnus is exactly where he was at the end of Shooter's run when he left, hanging out with the goths, and nothing's changed other than the fact that he has a white cape now. <laughs> it was just like, I, I, I truly don't think Shooter did have more of a plan, and this is, we're going to get to my tinfoil hat theory here. Tinfoil hat theories. I think Valiant and Jim Shooter's story there wasn't actually a tragedy after all. You know, it's often talked about that he was shoved out of the company, you know, unceremoniously and forced out and never got to fulfill his vision. I think Shooter is smarter than that. I think he knew exactly what he was getting himself into. And I think he accomplished exactly what he set out to accomplish, which was a universe that was tightly editorially controlled, a universe where he had the final say on every single title and wrote almost every issue himself, or at least was the final word on it, because he said in interviews before, even the issues that have other people's names attached to it too, if his name is on it also, that means he went back and rewrote it because he didn't like it or saw a problem with the script. So almost every single issue in that era was personally written by Shooter and the ones that weren't had his personal seal of approval. He created a perfect interlocking coherent universe because he was working with either people who were coming right out of the Kubert school who had no egos and had no sense of, hey, I'm an established creative talent, you can't tell me what to do, or pariahs in the industry who had nowhere else to go and had to take it. He got to finally be the totalitarian creative force. He couldn't be at Marvel because people wouldn't stand for it. And if you look at the great issues he wrote, the highlights of those runs, the best, best, best issues, I think of like Eternal Warrior number zero, Solar Man of the Atom one through four, Harbinger number zero through six, Exo Man of War number one. All of the best issues are origin stories. I can't think of a single example of a done-in-one story shooter wrote that was just good storytelling. His best moments, what we loved about his writing, was his universe building. It was the sense of, I'm creating something big and enormous that has the excitement of Marvel 1961 all over it. Aren't you excited to see where I go next? <laughs> and so he built that universe, and he got it up to Unity. He created their first major crossover. He left plans for where these characters might go in the future for Ryan number zero. So we have Shooter writing or rewriting almost every single issue that Valiant puts out. And he had this quote to say, during that year, and he's referring to late 1991 to early 1992, I literally didn't have time to get a haircut, which is why I ended up with a ponytail. It wasn't a fashion statement. Being in the office pretty constantly, I ate too much pizza and junk food, got no exercise, and generally didn't take good care of myself. The only good meals I had were when we go to my favorite Italian restaurant, Valeri, usually when Barry or some other writer or artist was in town. And we talk over plots or other business over dinner. It's no wonder 1992 was the worst health year of my life. I developed a food allergy, had severe back problems, had the worst flu I've ever had, had Bell's palsy, had a flare-up of arthritis in my knee that put me on crutches for a while, and eventually required surgery. I'm a lot better now. Wow. My point in all this is what Shooter was doing was completely and totally unsustainable. There was no way he could ever hope to keep this going, and I don't think he intended to. I think he's, Shooter's a smart guy. 
he knew that he was partnered up with two venture capitalists and an accountant who was looking out for himself. He knew they were looking to make a quick buck. He knew they were trying to flip the company for money. He had to realize his time was limited. And so it's interesting when you look at interviews with Shooter about why he stuck around when it got hard. He never once mentions the fact that he was passionate about the vision. It's that I love these characters or I love this universe or I believe there were kids out there who needed these stories. It's always about I had to redeem myself. I had to prove myself. And he did. All it took was seven months of great output and he built a universe that had DC and Marvel shaking in their boots, walked away, and the best part was he left looking like a martyr with everybody cheering him on and shaming everybody who did him wrong. Shooter won. Well, I mean, there were also people that loved that he got <laughs> fired. His enemies <laughs> to this day, there's people that hate him. Engelhart might have been cheering just a little bit. <laughs> you know, Engelhart actually worked on uh, in Valiant. I think he was doing, was he was it Shadow Man or was it? Uh, Exo. Might have been Exo. Shadow Man yeah. and Exo, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I think Shooter admits that he let him go because he wanted to hit things his way. Oh, oh, I, I, I got quotes on that one, if you got a moment. Because it's it's hilarious what went down between them. This is, I mean, this is the epitome of, when I say tightly editorially controlled, I, I'm, I'm going to let the quotes speak for themselves, okay? A little background, actually, first, before I let it speak for itself. Exo Man of War number one has this moment where um the main character walks across the country. That's it. Just, he doesn't have a car. He has no money. He just walks across the country. No big deal. But it was a huge deal to Shooter. So here's the quote. As a matter of fact, he, Engelhart, posed some incredible continuity problems for me that I went through hell fixing. He'd plot a story and it would be drawn. Then I'd realize, wait a second. Exo walks from South America to New York? Okay. Steve treated it like he'd arrive the next day and has events in number two, number three, and number four, which he plotted which suggested that what must have taken been a long journey happened overnight. But I've got characters interacting with Exo over here. And if his arrival was, say, eight months after what happened in the related books, so what did they do for eight months? So I had to do this elaborate thing where Solar gets lost in space for months. The Harbinger kids are on the moon for months. All this maneuvering to accommodate Steve's total disregard for continuity. All by the seat of my pants. Trying to remember where everyone is and is going. <laughs> I mean, that could have been a no prize in a letter column. But he goes and rewrites the whole freaking line for multiple issues to fix this one error. And this is the crazy part to consider, okay? So he personally rewrites that issue overnight. There's another quote that explains that's the time frame. He goes and overnight just rewrites the entire thing. Engelhardt comes to the office next day and finds out. Shooter did a total rewrite. Back at Marvel... One thing Shooter prided himself on that was really big to him was he improved the entire um, pipeline of getting comics ready for publication. He made sure there was enough time when they got to the editor that there was time to fix them if there was an issue before it was time to go to print. So here's Shooter with even more power and more oversight at a smaller company with less titles. And suddenly he has to do an all-night rewrite in the comic because of one continuity glitch. Instead of maybe going to Engelhard and saying, hey, can you make a change? It sure seems like that's a BS explanation. And that Shooter was just more comfortable writing stuff himself. He couldn't. He couldn't write all the books. He almost did. 
You know, it kind of reminds me. It reminds me of Stan Lee. You know, when ah. Stan Lee started Marvel, uh, Marvel, he he was kind of similar, except he had the artist help. He would give him a little plot, and the artist would you know fill in the blanks and whatever. But think, but you're saying Exo walking across, you know, the world. That happened all the time in Marvel Comics, you know. Right. Mo Man, Mo Man would be somewhere, and the next thing you know, is in New York. How did he get there? Like ten minutes later, you know. So, so they, they never explained it. You just said, "Okay," you know. You shrug your shoulders. I don't. I think you're absolutely right to to put a compare and contrast between um, Shooter and Lee because Stan Lee was in many ways Shooter's role model. I, I mentioned before that Shooter is very hesitant to praise other people. He does it occasionally, but usually when he does, he praises people for following his advice. And the one writer I know of that Shooter has praised for reasons other than he did what I told him to is Stan Lee. And if you think back to what we know about Shooter from our first episode, by the way, you can always go back and listen to it if you have a penchant for really, really bad audio quality in editing. Sounds like we're underwater in a pool. <laughs> but um, in that episode, we talked about how Shooter got started, that he was a kid in the hospital and he was sick of DC Comics. He was over them. And he started reading Marvel Comics written by Stan Lee. And he fell in love. He got excited. And I think he sort of tried to become Stan Lee after that point. And, you know, if you don't know comic history the way geeks like us do, it looks like Stan Lee created that universe by himself. And tightly, carefully watched everything. And, of course, we know better. We know that Stan was really, really smart. Stan was really good about delegating by allowing, by empowering the artists to create plots themselves. It made it more possible for Stan to manage the whole thing. I think Shooter missed that memo and as a result is trying to take over everything and, and pull control away from the people he's working with. And I actually have a, a quote about this. Um, when uh, Shooter won the Lifetime Achievement Award at Diamond, um, I think this was right before he got fired or maybe it was right after. Uh, Stan Lee came up to him, and this is from Shooter's mouth, he says this. After the event, I ran into Stan, and he said, You know, I'm really proud of you. You're the best I ever had. And I said, I just went through a month where I wrote six comic books. It almost killed me. You wrote 12 a month for 10 <laughs> years. How did you do it? He said, You put a lot more into it than I did. I said, No, I don't. But wow, that was a great moment. And my, my point is, I think Stan was right. I don't think Stan was working as hard as Shooter was. And I don't think Stan had a need to control things the way Shooter did. Shooter was trying to out Stan Lee, Stan Lee. And for seven months, he succeeded. Seven months. You know, you still haven't said your simple hat theory. That it all went down the way he wanted to. That he only planned for it to last a short time. So you he, you meant he, he, he sabotaged his time in Valiant to leave early? Is that what you're saying? Not sabotaged. He was smart enough to realize this wasn't going to last for the long term. He knew he was going to get screwed by these people anyway. And his only goal was to prove, to create a really interesting universe to show, hey, if you guys had listened to me at Marvel, I would have done it there. Look how good this is. And then walk away and watch it crumble. Well, I, I, he probably saw the handwriting on the wall that he was getting screwed. But there was a lot of legal, there was a lot of legal battles and there was a lot sure. of court things happening. So it wasn't like he went without a fight, but no, I mean, you're you're right. He fought, but all of his, the fighting he did that we know about was to make sure the people who worked for him got taken care of. It wasn't about being able to come back to work or work on his characters more or to control them further. It was, hey, Janet Jackson's been loyal to me. She deserves to be treated well. 
They let them all. They let them all go. They let Steve Ditko go. They let everybody go. So they had no loyalty towards. They, they didn't adhere to any of that. Yeah, and I I think that's the whole thing. Is right, let's be realistic for a moment. You've been at the top. You were the editor in chief of Marvel Comics during one of their heydays. You know, I even mentioned episode one. He actually had a float devoted to him in the Thanksgiving Day Parade in New York City. He was that big a deal. And then you're planning a superhero universe with a dude who's coordinating ice capades with you. (laughs) I mean, he had to know this thing had a limited time on it. As soon as you bring in venture capitalists, I'm sure they made no illusions what they were about. I can't believe for a second they promised they cared about good quality storytelling and treating employees well. They were there to make a buck. He didn't care about many people. You know how he ended up, right? We talking Sosky? shooter? Oh no, I don't. Sosky. Yeah, what he died of cancer. He died of cancer at age fifty-nine. Well, that's sad. Maybe. I take that back. I take that. Whoa! Back. I'm, I'm just saying, like you know, a lot of times we don't see justice in this world, but sometimes you do. <laughs> but uh yeah you know i guess when you swim with sharks you know what do you expect yeah i look shooter wanted marvel to be his he wanted to be the next stan lee he wanted to reset everything and make everything his i think we belabored that point a lot in episode one and whether or not you want to fight my tinfoil well, you're belaboring it right now that's for sure <laughs> Yeah, I know you you don't like Shooter, but take it easy, right? Oh, no, 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 no. This is not me not liking Shooter at all, actually. I love Valiant Comics, and what Valiant Comics was is what happens when Shooter gets his way. I love Shooter. I love his vision. I think he plays very badly with other people. That's not the same as disliking him at all. And he had a great vision for Marvel. The only problem was it didn't match what all the creators there who were doing great things wanted. So he got an opportunity to show what happens when he gets his way. And for a brief, shiny moment, it worked. Yeah, really brief. Gabe, what, what's your thought? Gabe, what's your thought about Jim Shooter? I, I actually love the guy. I mean, I definitely agree with a lot of what you had to say. But um, yeah, I think Shooter willingly did himself in with a lot of what he did. You been in Valiant or Marvel or both? Bit of both. It's Jeff. It's like what you said. It's with the whole putting trust in people that weren't creative types, and it and it happened too with Defiant and Broadway too. I would say it's less, you know, lack of awareness. Although I think in some ways he did have a lack of awareness when he came to get along with people. I think it was more stubbornness. I, I think the comic book industry had come along and matured's the wrong word. It had evolved or arguably devolved to the point that it was very, very corporate. And if you want to get something made in comic books, you had to be willing to play ball. You know, you probably had to work for a big company. You probably had to be used to having your ideas altered and changed. You had to get along with other people and and temper your vision to match theirs. And then there's a mega event coming up next month. You got to make it fit that. Of course, you can blame Shooter for mega events. But um, in a way... And this is going to prove how much I like Jim Shooter. Okay, George, you're, you're going to have to start seeing it differently after this because I'm going to. This I, is my. I already don't. I already don't believe you. So go ahead. All right, that's fine. <laughs> Let's go there then. This is this is my highest compliment I can pay to Jim Shooter, is I think Jim Shooter was the Orson Welles of comic books. 
in that Orson Welles was a guy who didn't want to play by everybody else's rules. He had big ideas. He wanted to control it all himself. And the part, most of the reason people revere Citizen Kane, you know, I think it's an overrated film. I don't think it's, people call it the greatest film ever made. I don't think it's even close. But the story behind how it was made is extraordinary. The idea that this guy came out of almost nowhere, and instead of getting in bed with big companies and producers and directors, he made it himself. He did it the way he wanted to do it. And it became a classic as a result. And I think Shooter is the exact same way. And he had to get into bed with sharks. He had to work with unscrupulous people who were going to stab him in the back, and he knew that, because that was the only way to get it done his way. That That's a, that's a yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and to go even further with that, too, I, I, I think, because I can't let you agree with me, George. I got to keep pushing this until you disagree with me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, a guy who wants that level of control, it can't be sustained. To go back to the quote with Stan Lee, you know, we're saying, Stan, how'd you do it for 10 years? There was no way Shooter was going to be able to handle a company like Valiant lasting forever. Because one of two things is going to happen. Either one, he was going to have to surrender control, and that's not something Shooter does, or else he was going to have to work himself to death. This was actually a better solution. Oh, he could delegate authority, or maybe maybe he doesn't like to do that either. Who knows? He doesn't. I, they, I mean, if you look at the, the writing credits for almost every title, Shooter's on file, on record, as having said, when you see two names in the title, it's because we tried someone else that didn't work and I'd take over again. And you can see the rotating list of names. You can see him constantly trying to hand these books off to other people and pulling them back again. And I'm sorry, if Steve Englehart isn't good enough for you, if Steve Englehart isn't good enough for you, you, you can get on him about deadlines. But if you're going to say the quality of his script is not good enough, I don't know who you're waiting for. You mean you're okay with the guy walking across America and one day? Yeah, let's do it. Let's let's Forrest Gump this thing, man. Let's have a 12-issue maxi-series with platinum editions and interlocking covers about Eric's walk across America. (laughs) (laughs) If Shooter's writing it or Engelhart's writing it, I'm buying. You know, we we went past my my tinfoil theory. I got to throw it out there for you. I was hoping you would. Because you're talking about shooter and control and everything else. I believe that when he wrote Unity 2000, he was really good considering trying to buy Valiant. He he was scouting out the area. He was getting his foot back in the door. I mean, shooter got money. You know, shooter's not poor. Okay. Now I think he was gonna he was gonna try to. Uh, see where they were and maybe take charge of everything and become the big boss again. But when he didn't get paid, <laughs> I think I think he said, well, you know, they're in too bad a shape. You know, you know I, I wouldn't argue your theory. Um, it actually, I think, opens up an even bigger question, which is I understand why Shooter went to Marvel. I understand why Shooter tried to buy Marvel. I understand why he created the new universe. I get why he started Valiant. What I don't understand about him is what he wanted from his career once Valiant was done. Once you've made something like that, where do you go next? You know, would he then... I mean, he obviously tried to start two more companies afterwards. Um, I'm curious what his goal was there. Was he going to delegate more this time? Did he want to crash and burn again? But going back to Valiant a second time and redoing it, I'm not saying he wouldn't do that. 
I guess I'm just wondering, what makes you think that's what he wanted? You know, when he was at Marvel, he had people doing all the books, and he wasn't in control of it. Frank Miller, Simonson, they were doing their books. He wasn't rewriting those books. So he could he could hire somebody and let them go. Yes. And if you read his interviews about those guys, what he loved about them was that they took his direction. Because he felt that they listened to him very well, he trusted them to ultimately go off on their own. You're right. In a few rare occasions, he would do that. I mean, maybe it was, you know, that's where Valet was going, you know, eventually. But, you know, maybe with Steve Enkelhardt is, you know, teaching an old dog new tricks, you know. Enkelhardt has been known to bang heads with other people that were not Jim Shooter. Sure, he's almost as stubborn as Shooter is. I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, you know, so you you do have, you know, that that's always been the battle in comic books. You have people that they don't want to be told anything. Yeah, I, I think... Especially writers. I think the difference with, uh, with Miller and Simonson is for the entire time they're working under Shooter, their works were selling very well. They were very well received. And I think what goes wrong is, as soon as a comic isn't selling well, Shooter doesn't want anybody else's perspective. He believes that what he thinks will save it, will save it. And that goes back to, you know, the whole conversation with Doug Mensch and, uh, and Shang-Chi of, you got to kill him off, that's the way to do this. And Doug Mensch going, The Wait, book no! wasn't Wait. selling! The book wasn't selling! It was going to get canceled anyway! Let's sure, but rehash that! Sure, Yikes. but where, but where was the conversation of, hey, Doug, your book's not selling well. Got any ideas for changes? Where was that, that moment? He said the book. He says you have to come up with something new. The book isn't selling. My no, he boss didn't. is upstairs. Said to cancel it. He said it's not selling. I want your main character dead. I want to see his blood. He can't come back. That's a very different conversation. <laughs> Gabe, jump in here. Gabe, jump in here. <laughs> Gabe, next episode, I want George dead. I want to see his blood. That's, I want no way he can come back. Blood. That's it. <laughs> I'm going to get some hitman on that. <laughs> hey Tommy Monahan is my guy alright only if they'll put a gun in Santa Claus's mouth <laughs> well uh, <laughs> woo. Um, I know we were going to spend some time talking about how Shooter got fired from Valiant I feel like we kind of skipped over that um, Gabe that was going to be your section do you want to backtrack and sort of hit on that for a moment um I can, sure. Um, oh, if you're up to it. <laughs> um, well, basically, one of his guys on the board got in bed with somebody else, and it was just just over. He he left the company. Masarski actually. He started yeah. sleeping with the with, with the banker. They're, yeah, they're <laughs> and doing. They, and, they, and they outvoted him. I think at that point, you know that that guy that you mentioned earlier. I think his name is Fox. What's his name? Winston. Yeah, they fired him. Yeah, they did. Okay, to get him out of the way. That way they could gang up on Shooter. So, I mean, like you said, he, he trusted the wrong people, you know. Yeah, and, and, and that's, of course, Shooter's version of the story. Um, yeah, I mean, so yeah. the girl that Masursky was sleeping with was one of the two members of the board who was representing Triumph Capital, which was their venture investment company that brought in all the cash. And, you know, the way Shooter tells it is that because they were, you know, in love or at least in lust... They were outvoting him and backing each other up. Yeah. I, you know, I, I... They actually got married. Did they? Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, good for them, I guess. But um, yeah. my point being, I think that's a very easy narrative to sell. Um, certainly, Masursky and that girl probably should not have been sleeping around. 
it probably was a major conflict of interest. But at the end of the day, they would have been on the same page anyway because their goal, both of them, was to make money. And Shooter's goal was to be creative and to protect his people. There was going to be an adversarial relationship no matter what. And even if Winston had sided with, with, um, if Winston hadn't been fired, and if he sided with Shooter, which are two major ifs, there were still two people from Triumph and Masursky. Masursky was always out for himself only. And the Triumph people were out for profit. So I think I don't think the sleeping together had anything to do with it. Um, Bob Layden um, acknowledged in uh, an interview that he did about Valiant that um, they had a guy named Fred Pierce from Triumph who was in the office on Normal's daily basis, standing over Shooter's shoulder, watching every decision he made, because apparently they trusted Shooter that little. Uh, Janet Jackson talked about there was a major tension that the Triumph people were always in the office demanding, when are you going to start turning a profit? When are you going to start turning a profit? And actually, one of the things I love about Shooter, this is a story I wish he would tell. He never has yet. Um, We know the guy's name was Fred Pierce. We know that he was there to watch Shooter and stand over him and have an adversarial relationship with him. You tell me how Fred Pierce ended up with the plot credit for Magnus Robot Fighter number 10. (laughs) I want to know how that conversation went, and I bet you Shooter was smiling the whole damn time. But the point being... You know, even when Shooter was trying to find a way to bring these people to his side, at the end of the day, they were going to screw him over. And it wasn't duplicitous. It wasn't because of an affair. It was because they were there to turn a quick buck. And Shooter was there to build something meaningful and to protect the people who are loyal to him. So you're saying it was doomed from the start. And I think Shooter knew that. That goes back to my tinfoil hat theory again. Shooter is not an idiot. I think he knew his time was numbered. And he made it count. And that's why he pumped out a whole freaking universe in seven months. Yeah. Sad. It's sad to think about all that. But, you know, I mean, look, who's going to who's gonna protect these properties? You know, because they want to sell it off and they're going to do whatever they want to do. You know, I, I guess this is, this is why, you know, when you, when you think about the comic books today where people, they start their own books and they own the characters, that's the way it should be. Because once a corporation takes over, they could do anything they want with the character. Yeah, I agree is, with... You don't say bad things. I agree with you, except for the fact that Shooter didn't want to tell one story. He wanted to build a universe. And you don't do that as an independent. That has to be done with a bigger company and bigger capital. And I would argue, I don't think it's sad at all. I think Shooter won. I think he redeemed himself. I think he showed everybody. And the sad part is that he still, you know, has prior status in the industry. And still doesn't seem to be able to get along with people for whatever reason. But he showed up. I don't think he cares anymore. So I mean, Maybe not. He's 70 years old. Yeah. And, and he's still getting work. He, he and people are still work. people are interviewing him and having podcasts about him. And somehow we have spent three of our six episodes talking about the man. <laughs> he won. This is a triumph. This is a success story. He did what he wanted shot. to do. Yeah. Valiant was fun, man. Valiant was fun. And I still like the characters. Too bad they didn't do much with them. I mean, right now, as Valiant stands, I heard that, that the, the latest thing, they sold themselves off to a company in 2023. They Actually, they licensed their the characters to something called Alien or Alan Books. Alien Books. And, like, there's no comp- there's no more Valiant. It's just they, they lease their characters off. And you haven't seen anything done with them. So... It's too bad it couldn't last. Yeah, it's sad. It's really sad. It, it, they fell in the same trap a second time, which was um, 
and this is for those of you who don't know the story, in 2009, after a very, very long and complex series of legal battles for the rights to Valiant that had been going for almost 10 years, um, finally a, a new Valiant comics came about, and they did a really excellent job with it. In fact, Gabe and I talked about before, we're both big fans of a lot of what they did. It was very respectful to the original, but also in many ways superior. And the rebooted Valiant lasted longer than the original. Um, that went until pretty much 2022, um, largely because the company got sold to another company that was only interested in the IP for the purposes of making films. They saw the money that the Marvel Cinematic Universe was making, and they wanted to see Valiant movies. And so this company put pretty much all their eggs into making the Bloodshot movie. Mm. Um, and then, I don't. I, I still haven't seen the Bloodshot movie. I don't know if it's any good or not. It's, but it's, cert- it's, 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 I watched 10 to 15 minutes of it. It was honestly all I could stomach. <laughs> wow, oh, 10 to 15 minutes? Yeah! <laughs> Wait, now Gabe, I want to hear all about it. What happened? <laughs> it, it, it's... It's like a superhero version of Inception. You just keep getting flashback after flashback after flashback, and then you find out that he's a nanite super soldier with... I, I don't know. <laughs> he still doesn't know! <laughs> this is coming from a man who half of his comic book collection is Valiant, and he couldn't get through more than 15 minutes of the first Valiant film. That's not a good sign. <laughs> Oh, I thought they got doomed because like they released it right where right the pandemic. Oh no, I that mi- that, that might have been some of it. Yeah, that certainly didn't help. But my gosh, if Gabe doesn't like it and wouldn't even get through it, that's a that's two thumbs down from the Gabe scale. That's that's not good. And I mean, I love Bloodshot. He's my favorite Valiant character. I do. Wow. <laughs> okay, I gotta, so you... send, I gotta send you some of my Bloodshot books because they're stinking up my collection. Wait, I need more help with this then, Gabe. Because he was a super soldier full of nanites in the comic, too. So what about the movie made it so intolerable? Now I'm going to have to go watch this thing, damn it. How could you tell in <laughs> 15 minutes how bad it was? <laughs> oh, you can tell. You can tell. Well, it was bad enough that the guy who directed it, his previous credits were directing video games. So he had no movie-making <laughs> skills whatsoever. Yikes. Wow. Somebody okay. had to direct it. Well, and that was, was that Vin Diesel? Yes. Yeah, who I'm not the strongest actor ever. <laughs> Anybody who's a huge fan of his, I apologize. Oh, no, too fast, too furious. No, he, he, had, a, he had a franchise. He had a franchise. Though. A couple of them. He had, yeah. he had the perfect dark one, too, and Triple X and all Triple that. Triple X, that's the one I'm yeah. talking about. So, I mean, he was viable. The problem I have with Vin Diesel also extends to Keanu Reeves and Nicolas Cage. They don't emote. <laughs> they, they play themselves. They don't play a character. Whoa. So anyway, um, one thing I wanted to come back to very briefly, um, just talking. I love this turned into yet another Jim Shooter episode. Episode one was Jim Shooter. Episode two was a DC-centered episode that ended up being about Jim Shooter. And here we are talking Jim Shooter again. But, um, you know, the idea of what happened to those characters and how sad that is. You know, the, the real joke, and I really have to think Shooter's sitting back and smiling and laughing about this. Most of those characters, he wrote their origin stories. He fleshed them out. But the general concept, Shooter was trying really hard to placate the people around him, at least as he tells it. So Don Perlin would walk in and be like, um, hey, I, I, I heard about a movie about a guy who dies and comes back to life. Can we make a comic about that? 
And then Shooter would be like, sure, let me make it happen. And then you're like, that's what Solar becomes. You know, or like, you know, Spider Aliens. <laughs> that was like not a Jim Shooter idea. Somebody else walked in with that. He's like, sure, I'll make it work. And as a result, I think Shooter was having fun with the idea that you can throw him any stupid idea you want and he could make it work. He can't have the Marvel Universe? Fine, give him Spider-Aliens. He'll make it work instead. He can't have Valiant? Fine, give him Broadway. He'll make it work instead. Or Defiant, he'll make it work instead. Put him in any freaking situation, he'll come out on top. I don't think Shooter necessarily cares what happened to the Valiant characters. I, I guess that's what happens in comic books all the time. You see something and you get inspired. Didn't uh, Shang-Chi start because Engelhard and starting like... Uh, uh, the TV show Kung Fu. Sure. You, know, you get your inspiration where you get it. It's Except at the same time, and, and this shows, you know, the difference with Shooter, a lot of people get attached to one idea and won't let it go. I mean, we were, we were talking about um, um, Englehart before. You know, think about what happened with the Avengers and how we got attached to Mantis. And, you know, that character had to be part of everything. Oh, um, Shoot- yeah. You're Shooter, right about that. Shooter does not get attached to characters. Shooter is about the idea. He's about the larger shape of things. And if you throw him a Mr. Potato Head, he'll find a way to meaningfully embed it into the fundamental bedrock of a universe. <laughs> He's a genius. Oh, boy. <laughs> you don't know whether you love the guy or hate him. I don't know. Oh, no, I, I absolutely love him. I'm just also able to criticize him at the same time. Well, okay, let me, let, let, let's, change, let's change this up a little bit. All right. What's your favorite value book, Gabe, of all time? Not counting Bloodshot would probably be Shadow Man. What about you, Jeff? During Shooter or after Shooter? Any 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 era. Which That's is the hard. character and the book that you thought this is a good book? At the time, I, you know, one thing I forgot to talk about earlier is I think that um, one of the things Shooter did incredibly well was he catered demographics. So when I was a kid, Harbinger rocked my world. Because it was a book written to people my age. That was as I, yeah. And as I got older, Magnus Robot Fighter started to appeal to me because that's a book about a guy who's in the world, he's making it work, but he's starting to question everything. And now that I'm in my 40s, Solar speaks to me because that's about a much older guy who's full of an equal amount of self-loathing and self-aggrandizing, trying to figure out his place in the world and why he hasn't achieved all of his dreams yet. So the answer to my question, George, is so many of them, depending upon where I was in my own life journey at the time. But probably overall, I'd say Magnus Robot Fighter from beginning to end is my favorite of them all. That's the one book I never liked, Magnus Robot Fighter. And it's the I one just, that got I, better I after Shooter. Yeah, I couldn't connect to it. The one I liked the best, Eternal Warrior. I oh, loved Eternal that book. I love that book. Number one is my single favorite Valiant comic of all time. Is that, that book right? is incredible. Eternal Warrior number one, the the origin of him and his brother. Wow. Well, they had they had a lot of good issues in that. I, in fact, I have the entire run. That's the, I think that's the only uh, Valiant book that I have the entire run. I think it ran 50, 50 something issues, whatever. But I just like the idea. They they open up with him like an event that happened in the past, like way ancient times, and then they bring it to present day, and it's kind of related. I like it. The only weakness with that book is that the artwork, you know. <laughs> they, how did we get this far into a discussion of Valiant and not talk about the artwork yet? That amazes me. You know, they have bad artwork. If a couple of shining people, like maybe uh, Barry Winsor Smith, but man, Don Perlin, that people, 
that were like just bland, you know? It, 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 I'm sorry, Gabe, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, well, at least the artwork was consistent. I can say that much. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was a house style, unless Frank Miller was doing covers, and then it got weird. <laughs> okay, now let me ask you another question. How much of a part did the Deathmate crossover have in Killing Valiant? <laughs> Who do you want to answer first, me or Jeff? <laughs> you, you, Gabe. You, Gabe. <laughs> well, there's a very famous quote from Bob Layton where he basically had to go to um, Rob Liefeld's house to get one of the issues of Deathmate finished, and he sat there and watched him draw it until he was done. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I reread that book like almost every year, The Deathmate. And I, I just keep rereading it so it could get better. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I kind of like, I like the whole idea that these two companies, these two upstart companies got it together. But it just seemed like right after it concluded, like the whole market crashed. The whole comic book industry crashed. But what's funny is I think everybody in the comic industry, except for the people running Valiant, knew what was going to happen. I mean, Image had already notoriously missed deadline after deadline after deadline. It was a joke. I don't know how they went in and blindly expected this was going to work. And it certainly wouldn't have happened if Shooter had still been at the helm. Well, I mean, that was way past Shooter already. Yeah. No, yeah, you know, I, I, I kind of like that series, but, you know, it just, it was a disappointing. They, the, certain books came out after the other books. It, th- it, it was... I don't know. I, I like the artwork. I like that, you know, that they put different people, like the image people were doing their books and the valid people who did their books. It was kind of nice. I think even if Shooter hadn't left, I think Valiant had a very limited shelf life. Um, because, and, and even without Deathmate, a lot of the excitement of it, and, and again, all of Shooter's best stories, were all about universe building. You know, all, the, all the, the moments that we love the most were all about, what a cool origin. I wait, can't wait to see where this goes next. I can't wait to see what they're building towards. And at a certain point, the hype exceeded what Valiant could potentially deliver. It, it reminds me a lot of what's happening with the Marvel Cinematic Universe right now, where so much of the appeal of those early phases was, where's this going? What's it building towards? And once you had Endgame, it's really, really, really hard to take this this fan level of excitement that's at a whole new critical mass and build something new that's going to satisfy that. I, I think there were only so many places Valiant could go to keep exciting people, and it would have been better if Shooter had stuck around for sure. It would have been better if Deathmate hadn't gotten screwed up for sure, but at a certain point, I, Turok number one, it was a good enough comic, but my God, do you, do you remember what the buzz for that issue was? That's the highest selling book of all time. I saw I literally saw, I think, three different fist fights break out in the same comic shop at the same time. People trying to get in pre-orders for Turok number one. It wasn't even there yet. There was no way that book was going to live up to people's expectations. It wasn't possible. And I mean, it was a good enough story, but I mean, I don't, I don't think it warranted that. No, <laughs> no, it didn't. And nothing, nothing possibly could. We were all making up for the fact that we hadn't been there for the first year of Valiant. Every one of us, as we bought new issues and bagged and boarded multiple copies, what was really happening is we were trying to time travel. We were trying to get back to get those issues <laughs> that we missed, to get that era of Valiant we couldn't get back. 
But Shooter was already gone, even if he wasn't. You know, the, the early magic was gone. You can't build the universe anymore. You can only tell new stories in the universe that exists. Hey, we came late to the dance. What, you can, what can you do? And you wore the prettiest, beautiful, frilly blue dress, George. It's a shame. You deserved more guys dancing with you. Naturally. <laughs> <laughs> this always gets weird, man. <laughs> oh my gosh, but it's more fun this way. Gabe, what's the single thing you miss most about Valiant that you wish comics were doing today? Well, I mean, I think the writing is there. I think it's just a lot of what modern comics have. It's just directionless. I mean, it's it's become just a one-person show, and that's mostly just the writer, and it's just the company having to bend to the writer's will. I mean, there's no community work on the stories anymore. That's really well said. And you bring up a whole other point that I can't believe we missed in talking about Valiant, which is that, you know, in the era that Shooter was doing this, you know, it was the era of image, both, you know, in terms of the company, in terms of what it represented. The artist was king, and that's what was selling books. And shiny foil covers and poly bags were selling books. And Shooter came in, and he put art last. That was his lowest priority. And he figured you tell great stories... You align the continuity, you do great editing, great world building. They'll forgive the bad art. And everybody did. Everybody looked away from, you know, McFarlane and Liefeld and some really, really gorgeous, talented art out there. And they put it aside for really great storytelling. And, you know, we do have an era of writing now. We're back into an era where writing comes first. But you're right, that strong editing is gone. Shooter came from the world of DC, you know, with these really tough fiercely controlled editorial fiefdoms. And he was the last to really try to exercise that level of control over a series of titles. And you don't see that anymore and probably never will again. Valiant was the last hurrah for a strong editor. Well, it's gone a different direction, that's for sure. Uh, (laughs) I I know that, uh, you know, they couldn't afford good artists. No, they couldn't. They could only afford the people that nobody wanted to hire. Like Barry Windsor Smith and maybe Bob Layton. People like you, that, they couldn't get work anywhere. To give Shooter a little more credit, first of all, um, when Barry Windsor Smith wanted more money, Shooter was uh, essentially paying him out of his own pocket when the company didn't have any cash to do it. And um, I, I have to mention this because I think it's one of the coolest little known things about Shooter. They were utilizing what he called Nabro. Um, actually, that wasn't uh, coined by him. That was Don Perlman who coined that. It was, you know, these new artists right out of the Kubert School who didn't know very much, who were kind of learning on the job. And the most talented, or one of the most talented artists to come out of Nabro was a gentleman named Paul Credick, who actually wasn't a graduate <laughs> of the Kubert School at all. What it was, and I, I still can't believe this is true, was when they didn't have enough money to hire an artist, it was freaking Jim Shooter, who didn't want anyone to know that he was also drawn because he thought it made the company look weak. And the crazy part is, he's a competent artist. He's not a great artist, but he's good enough. His panels look professional. And you're like, I always assumed, because Shooter would always, you know, criticize and micromanage the writers, and he pretty much let the artist go as long as they told a competent story. I think it was because he didn't know any better. Holy jeez, the man can draw. <laughs> I mean, he laid the book out competently, like you said. And right. I think he, he, he relied a lot on the inkers to clean everything up. Which, if you have a decent inker, that, that's, that's very possible. 
you know, when cloning technology gets further along, if Shooter just clones himself 30 times, you're going to have the best comic company ever. <laughs> we got artificial intelligence now. We don't even need any of that. They're all going to try to fire each other for breaking deadline. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> all right. It was it was super fun hanging out with you guys tonight. Um, I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot. We had a lot of laughs. Gabe, it has been so fun getting to talk to you, and thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. And George, that blue dress is stunning, man. It's going to be in my dreams tonight. Thank you. You suck. (laughs) (laughs) The CCF in Depth theme song is written, performed, and produced by Paul King. Thanks to Scott Harris King, creator of the original Classic Comics Forum podcast. And the biggest thank you in the entire world to our heroes, our Patreon supporters, including Bill Sinclair, Marty Golia, Michael Gallagher, Paolo Zikedu, Tim Schneider, and our newest Patreon supporter, Berkeley. You guys make all the difference in the world, and I can't imagine what we wouldn't be able to do if we didn't have you sticking by us and supporting us. Thank you so very much. Did you know that this episode was recorded twice? And there's a version of it where George's voice is replaced by a trombone. If you'd like to hear that and all sorts of other quirky, strange outtakes and extra content we've created, then you really need to become a Patreon member and get access to the hidden, secret, full of so much awesome content, there's no way I could possibly describe it all right now. But it's a great way to support us and to get more content and more fun. CCF in Depth is produced in partnership with the Classic Comics Forum, the friendliest, most knowledgeable place on the web to go for discussion of classic comics from days gone by. Check us out at classiccomics.org or find us on Facebook. See you next month. Comics.org